0: All lowercase. That's Shopify.com slash special offer.
1: Shop, your, your history. You are a liar. You're a cheat. You're a scam. You are a no good son of a bitch.
0: Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm pissed off. I am just pissed.
1: By the way, do you know anybody that can kick a field goal? I mean anybody. (laughs) High school, junior high, I don't know, anybody. Because if you do, have them call the Minnesota Vikings today, like immediately. It's
0: Ridiculous. Football season is back upon us, and uh, everybody's talking about it, and we are going to give everybody an episode today. Everybody's going to be talking about scale of 1 to 10, Eric. The Ric Flair story from 1998. Is this uh, in the top 10 things you didn't want to talk about on this show?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, it is, because it's serious. You know, there, there's just a lot of really, you know, there was a, a lot of very serious, intense things. Um, feelings and opinions and facts and points of view on both sides of the equation and you know it wouldn't be so bad if i wasn't friends with with rick and didn't have as much respect for him as i do but you know a show like this is going to force me to kind of dig into some stuff that i prefer not to dig into but we knew that going in so there you go
0: well and it's pretty timely because this past week uh, was a commitment ceremony with uh, mr rick flair and his longtime fiance fifi the french maid now let's talk about this for just a minute before we get too serious
1: because people have you know different people have different opinions about wcw and the effect that it had on you know the state of wrestling as we know it today and everybody's got a strong opinion but can anybody deny the fact that if were it not for wcw There are some very happily wedded folks today that wouldn't even know each other. Shawn Michaels and his wife would not have ever met had it not been for the Nitro Girls. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, you can directly tie Shawn Michaels' wedded bliss to his beautiful wife and their children directly to the Nitro Girls. Thank you very much. Shawn, you're welcome. Anytime, brother. Let's do a hunt pretty soon. And now we've got Fifi, the French maid, Long ago, Rick had eyes for Fifi. (laughs) He really had eyes for Fifi. Little did we know that Fifi also had eyes for the Nature Boy. And here we are, 25 some odd years later, and they're in a commitment ceremony. I've seen the pictures. Dennis Rodman was there. Undertaker was there. My good buddy Darren Prince was there. You were there. Everybody was there, and it looked just so
0: joyous. It is uh, maybe the most surreal experience of the year for me, uh, but congratulations to Rick and Wendy and um, let's try to screw up their honeymoon week, I guess, and <laughs> drag up uh, painful old memories of WCW and Eric Bischoff from 1998. Let's start from the beginning, I guess, though. When did you first meet Rick Flair? I mean, it would have been when you came in as an announcer, I'm sure, right? Yeah,
1: it's really, ironically, I started... I think I came in in June May or June and my very first television taping was in Anderson South Carolina and that was Rick's last shot in WCW before going to WWF and I literally walked up to Rick he was stretching in the back um, I walked up to W's by himself and I introduced myself and he's very pleasant very cordial you know how I mean Rick is charming as charming can be. Um, and introduced myself and he said, Hey, you know, p- pleased to meet you. Welcome aboard. And boom, he was gone the next day.
0: Well, of course he came back in 1993 and of course you're still there then, but it's not too long before WCW needs a new captain of the ship. And Rick even wrote in his book with Watts gone, Shaw wanted to know if I was interested in overseeing the day-to-day wrestling operations for WCW. The answer was a resounding No. I had no desire to leave Charlotte and move to Atlanta, nor did I consider myself responsible enough to have that type of position. At that stage of life, I really just wanted to be a wrestler. Bob Dew asked if I could make myself readily available to help him, and I had to tell him the truth. Look, Bob, I can't be an executive and a wrestler. I don't want to spread myself that thin. And he followed up with a question that may live in infamy. What do you think of Eric Bischoff? Bischoff was a wrestling announcer who seemed to have a lot of knowledge about the entertainment business and was constantly pitching ideas. I like Bischoff, I replied. I think he's aggressive and smart. At first, Bischoff and Bob Do were a team, but almost immediately, Eric started maneuvering to get rid of Bob. Something I still feel guilty about is that I unwittingly helped Bischoff with this scheme. How's Bob doing? Shaw asked one day. He's struggling, I admitted. Does Bischoff seem like the kind of guy who can make decisions, definitely. So it feels like Rick takes a little bit of credit for helping get you to this top spot uh, to move up the ladder a little bit, but then starts to wonder if you're using your power for evil. What would you make of reading this? I'm sure you've heard this story before from Rick's autobiography.
1: Yeah. Here we go right off the bat. Um, there's some serious issues with timing there you, with, with regard to to Rick's recollection and his ability to have recommended me for the job. Uh, Rick had never worked with me, uh, really. Rick didn't know me, um, when, when I got, when I got the call. So, uh, I I mean, there's, look, time, this is 25 some odd years ago. We all have... Faded memories and we recall things the way we choose to recall them. I think subconsciously we've talked about that before and I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of that as well. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm human just like everybody else, but there's some serious timing issues there. Um, number one, number two, you know, almost right off the bat, you know, according to Rick's autobiography, I had problems with Bob Duke. That's not true. Um, that's just flat out, you know, I'm, I'm sure whoever wrote Rick's autobiography uh, for him um, probably connected a few dots and forgot to look at the details. But um, Bob and I got along fine. There were no real issues there uh, until um, because we were losing money hand over fist and we were asked by Turner Finance to all come up with ways that we could save money. And my way was to cut at, cut back on house shows because we were losing money. I've said this so many times before. I'm sick of hearing myself say it, so I'm not going to dwell on it. But when you looked at our financials over the – at the, at that time, the course of a year or two years previous, um, and you looked at our financials, it, it wouldn't take a, a math professor to figure out that we were losing money every time we went out the door. And Bob Dew, and it, and it was really because of his relationship with a gentleman by the name of Don Sandifer. Don Sandifer and Bob Dew were really good friends. They golfed together. They drank martinis together. They, they, they whatever they did together, they did together. They were thick as thieves. And Don was from the live event side of the business. That was the only thing that Don Sandifer did in WCW was manage the, the live events for us. And... You know, I I stood up in a room, and then there was you know quite a few people in the room. It was an executive committee meeting, and I said, "Look, we've got to quit doing house shows," and you know Bob was you know aghast at that that I would suggest that. But it was the only place that we could possibly save money because we were hemorrhaging money every time we went out the door, and that that created an issue not between Bob and I, so much. I I. You know, I st- still get along with Bob when I see him occasionally, once every five or ten years. I'm friends with his daughter, Lori Dew. she's um, just a sweet, sweet person. But it definitely created some problems for Bob's side of the business. But that, that didn't happen until, God, that was a good year after, you know, I took over as executive producer. So once again, I think the timing as it's, you know, been framed in that autobiography is a little bit questionable.
0: He also says that he was essentially the middleman between you and Hulk Hogan when Hogan came to WCW in 94. He wrote, you get along with Hogan? Uh, That's what you asked Rick. And Rick responded, yeah, I get along with him very well. And you wanted to know, you think he'd consider coming here? And Rick replied, I don't know. I'll talk to him. So he says he called Hogan and started to sell Eric. And he says, quote, the guy's got a vision. He's got some good ideas, and they have the money here to make things happen. Eric and I began a campaign to lure Hogan to WCW. We'll do this together, Eric said. We've talked about this before, but how big of a role do you think Flair really was in getting Hogan in?
1: Again, that autobiography kind of distorts the actual facts a little bit, not a lot. Um, I, I didn't go to Rick and ask him to reach out to Hulk. That part isn't true. Uh, I did rely 100% on Rick to get Hulk comfortable. Um, Hulk was, you know, again, context is king. But he was coming off the. He was. He was not in WWE or WWF. So the 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 urban narrative that I stole Hulk Hogan from WWF is a blatant you know, fabrication. It didn't didn't happen that way. He'd already left Vince and. And Hulk had parted company uh, over the steroid trial, and Hulk had made up his mind that he was done with wrestling. He was going to go on and do television in movies. He was working on a movie call, or on a television series called Thunder and Paradise uh, that was filming at the Disney MGM studios the same time we were filming there, and that's when I put the word out that I, you know, sure would love to talk to Hulk Hogan, and, and Hulk called B in the middle of the night. It was like 1:30 in the morning on a, on a weekday and uh, woke me up and I immediately knew who it was pretty recognizable voice. And we started chatting. And at that point I tagged Rick in because Hulk didn't trust anybody. He didn't trust anybody in WCW. He looked at WCW for what it was at that time, which was a, just a cluster and, 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 completely mismanaged. And it was a revolving door of senior management and it was, it was a political nightmare and Hulk knew that, but Hulk also, he, he liked the deal because look, Hulk's kids were really, you know, Brooke and Nick were really, really young. You know, the idea of being able to only work, you know, a handful of dates a year and a couple of TVs to support those dates. His original deal was for four pay-per-views a year. And then the television uh, appearances that were required, I think three or four of them leading up to each one of those pay-per-views. So you can do the math. There's like 16 dates total, I think, maybe maybe a few more, 20. And that meant that Hulk could spend a lot of time home with his kids. And that's what his priority was. But at the same time, he didn't want to enter into the, the cesspool or the shark tank, as he referred to it, of WCW because it was just. Everybody was, you know, stabbing each other in the back at every every opportunity, and Rick was the one guy that Hulk knew he could work with and that he could trust. He knew absolutely that he could get in the ring for his comeback, and he knew that he could trust Ric Flair. So I did use Rick. I mean, Rick. Rick was down there every meeting I had with Hulk. Rick was there. Uh, I think, with the exception of discussing money, uh, which came at the very, very end. But in the beginning, it was, yeah. If it wouldn't have been for Rick, I don't think Hulk would have ever made the move.
0: Well, he eventually does make the move, as we know. And um, he comes in and beats Rick in his debut match in WCW, Bash of the Beach 94, which we've covered, which was a huge success for WCW. And then a few months later, at Halloween Havoc, Rick would have a rematch with Hogan in a career match inside of a steel cage. And Rick wrote, I contacted Eric. Here's the deal, I said. I'm willing to lose, but I'm not ready to retire. You won't, he promised. You'll be out for at least a year just to make it look legit, but you'll work in the office, then we'll bring you back. I was a little worried. I'd been with the company for about a year and my contract hadn't been extended. Everyone told me that it would happen very soon, but it didn't have anything on paper. And he would go on to say, Later on, I was accused of holding the company up because I refused to lose the retirement match until I had a contract. But I needed to know that I would still have a job. So I stood my ground to the very end until Bill Shaw arrived at Halloween Havoc with my contract at hand. I looked it over, signed my name, went out, and lost to Hogan in the cage. Talk to me about this and what you remember of this retirement angle and maybe this being the first sort of sign of trouble with Flair and Eric.
1: Yeah, it wasn't really Flair and Eric. Look, I mean, you know Rick. You've done business with Rick. You're now part of the Flair family. You know, anybody that's really honest who has worked closely with, with Rick for any length of time knows that Rick can be difficult. Once Rick makes up his mind that he's unhappy with the situation or not comfortable with the situation, he gets emotional. And when Rick got emotional he became incredibly difficult to work with. And he saw things from his perspective and his perspective only that quote from that autobiography is mostly true. The, the, the key part of it that isn't necessarily a hundred percent accurate is that Rick still had plenty of time left on his contract. Now I understand that Rick and I would have done the same thing. This is not a knock, right? I understand that Rick wanted to be assured that beyond the, 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 the current agreement that he had, that there was another agreement, but that was that was I won't say it's unprecedented or wasn't unprecedented at the time, but to make it sound like, you know, his contract was almost up and he was on the bubble isn't necessarily true. There was plenty of time left on his contract. But he did want to be assured, because the, the, the retirement thing screwed with Rick's head. And again, I don't know, you know, I don't know how closely you've worked with Rick in, in certain situations, but that was one, and I'm sure it had a lot to do with, he didn't necessarily have 100% trust in the people that he was working with, and I don't blame him, by the way. He had got, you know, he got shafted pretty good by WCW on a couple different occasions. You know, his, his situation with Jim Hurt is legendary. Um, I mean, it's not like, you know, Rick was paranoid. Um, but um, there was plenty of time left on his contract. He did um, demand that we write him a new contract, and Bill Shaw did show up in Detroit at Halloween Havoc with that contract that allowed us to move forward. Um, I never accused Rick of holding us up. Um, I understood what he was doing and why he was doing it, but to suggest that... You know His contract was running out, and he was on the bubble, and he didn't know if he was going to have a job or not. Uh, Somebody took some creative liberties there, some editorial liberty, let's say.
0: The the hits keep coming in the book. He would write, The one-year deal made me uncomfortable, but I kept telling myself that I had nothing to be concerned about. Think about it. I helped Eric Bischoff get his job, recruited Hulk Hogan, allowed him to win the championship, then lost a retirement match. I just assumed that Eric would take care of someone like that. He had to, I reassured myself. There was no way he would screw me. Later, he would write, Just before Halloween Havoc in 95, I left to have surgery on my cataracts, a condition i developed from laying in tanning beds for too many years. Sting and I were teaming on the card, so we taped an interview together. Then I flew home for the operation, and when Bischoff found out about it, he called me up, screaming that he had never given me permission to take any time off. Besides, he claimed, the interview sucked and had to be done over. So I had my surgery on a Tuesday morning, and then, against doctor's orders, I rushed to the airport to get back to Atlanta and reshoot the interview. To this day, the vision in my right eye is so bad that it's going to require surgery again. So this is really the first time that some sort of tiff between you two about him missing an appearance or Taking Time Off, really rears its head in the book or the story that I could find, and we know what we're heading towards in 98. Chat me up here. What do you remember about this incident right before Havoc 95?
1: There were a number of incidents that were similar in in tone to that one. Rick had a habit of just picking, you know, I mean, remember, Rick Rick, Rick was a booker for a long time, right? Let's not forget that. And took on that responsibility. And we would be in the middle of a writing session. And I wouldn't necessarily be in it because I wasn't really booking at that time. But I would drop in just to make sure the process was moving along and things were getting done and things like that. And I would go about my business. And there were times when, you know, we'd have six, eight people, 10 people, you know who lived out of state coming into Atlanta for these booking sessions and Rick would disappear in the middle of the day. And it was like, where's Rick? You know, I'd go to Janie Angle. Where's Rick? Well, he went home. Well, what do you mean he went home? You know, Rick. there was a lot of things going on in Rick's life at that time, uh, personal things. And I think the pressure of the job, the things that were going on in his personal life, uh, he probably recalls things a lot differently than I do. And that's just the way it is. But I never, you know, I was never heavy handed with anybody. You know, and it's, it's ironic when I hear these these stories and these recollections about how abrasive I was or how unfair I was to people or abusive I was to people. There's no way if somebody needed surgery and had scheduled a surgery and we knew about it that I would bust their balls for, for going and taking care of that surgery. That's just that that never has been me, and it never will be me. And w- when I hear stories like that, and then I hear, you know, uh, uh, you know, the next chapter of somebody else's book will be, oh, Eric, just let everybody run all over the top of them. Okay? The inmates ran the asylum. Anybody could do whatever they wanted to do. Well, it's got to be one or the other, right? You know, it can't be both all the time. But That's it, fair. But it, but, it's, but, it, you know, it depends who's telling the story and how convenient it is and how it makes them look or how it makes that individual justify the actions or lack thereof that they took or the responsibility or lack thereof that they took in those situations. You know, do I recall making him come back to shoot an interview? No, I don't. Could it have happened? If he told me that his doctor didn't want him to fly and everybody, you know, could confirm that, then yeah, then, then he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have had to come back. I, I never, you know, put people in situations where they had legitimate issues and health issues and appointments with doctors or in this case, surgeries and said, screw it. I don't really care. Either come in or you're fired or whatever. That just that kind of thing never happened.
0: Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a -a one-of-a-kind beautiful hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium, you can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint Your Life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're hear in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment.
1: That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple you know, as what? bringing a bunch
0: of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It
1: opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show doors is
0: called The Deal. deal. Listen to the deal. Listen to the deal on Spotify. Let's keep going here. Of course, we know Rick goes on to win a couple more world titles, December 95 and then February 96. But then he starts to get pushed down the card a little bit. I think most people remember we've covered Bash at the Beach 96, where the NWO really becomes a thing. Well, he's challenging and becomes the United States champion here. And it's the first time maybe in decades at that point, that it feels like he's sort of moving back a little bit. Um, Rick would write, no matter what Bischoff claims, he used me to get Hogan and Savage. After that, I was a bit player to him, and I heard that he blamed me for decisions I didn't even make. When I was on the booking committee, Arn was asked to cancel a planned vacation and tour Japan. Why? Because Eric told Arne, quote, Flair wants you to. Um, before we talk about the booking decisions here with regard to sort of shifting blame to Rick, cause I know you want to address that. Talk to me about the decision to sort of move flair down the card. It does. Well,
1: let's, let's, I mean, let's back up a little bit before we get to that, because you, you know, when, when we read a reference like that or a quote out of the book, there's a couple points that I want to clear up. Rick had nothing to do with bringing Randy Savage in. So why, why, he would, you know, why he would write in his book, or and I don't think Rick wrote it, to be honest with you. Most of those books that were written by WWE had ghostwriters uh, attached to them. They wrote the books, right? Um, including mine, by the way. So I'm not being critical. Um, with the exception of probably Mick Foley, who wrote his in pen himself pretty much everybody had authors you know, helping them write their books. Some guys relied on those authors a lot more than others did. I don't really think Ric Flair spent a lot of time working on that book. I would imagine there were some interviews involved, and I would imagine that Rick remembered things the way he wanted them to be remembered in that book, but I can tell you that Rick had nothing to do with bringing in Randy Savage. That's one example of the kind of inaccurate you know, portrayals that, you know, cause me to listen to all of these excerpts from these books and go, yeah, but that's just not right. It's just not accurate. Now, you know, with regard to, you know, Arne's planned vacation, I don't know anything about that. I'm calling bullshit on that. And I never faded the heat to anybody. If we needed somebody to stay, I've always looked people in the eye and manned up and taken the heat for the decision. I've never faded heat to anybody even when it was possible for me to do it and probably justify it. So I'm, I'm calling bullshit on that.
0: Talk to me about moving, uh, moving him down from world title matches with Hulk Hogan to United States title matches with Conan.
1: Yeah, and that's that to me, you know, all this other stuff that you mentioned in the book, ah, I think it's probably 75% convenient memory and in and, and, and the kind of framework or context that the author of Rick's book really wanted because it told the narrative. But this is probably the point that you're talking about right now. This is probably where things really did start to fall apart between Rick and I. And this is where I've got to take, you know, you and I have had this, this discussion once before when you had a, a, a podcast with Rick and it's not pleasant for me because it's, you know, anytime you look at you back at yourself and you realize you really fucked up and you could have handled. you know, I don't regret decisions I've made. I don't regret choices I've made because, you know, you make them in the heat of battle. You make them in the moment. You make them with all of the available information and, 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 and a, you know, the tools that you have at your disposal in that moment. But I do regret sometimes and to this day, you know. And I'm I'm going to regret doing this podcast probably by the time it's over. Um, <laughs> the, the way I the way I tr- the way I acted, and I and I and I say I regret it because it would have been so easy to approach things a different way that would have probably had a different result, a better result. But I didn't, and for that, you know, I I do regret some of the things that I did, and I think one of the things that I did that I do regret was not, you know, taking the emphasis off Rick because nobody can stay the focal point indefinitely. I don't care if you're Hulk Hogan. I don't care if you're Steve Austin. I don't care if you're John Cena, whoever you are, if you've been at that, in that position for a while, especially if you've been around for a long, long time, um, you you need to take that spotlight off. You need to you need to try to find a way to create the absence makes a heart grow founder factor work for you. You can't st- constantly stay at the top of a program. And that is what was going on. What is the time frame we're talking about? 96? Yeah. Yeah. 96, obviously things had shifted creatively dramatically f- towards the NWO. That's where all of the spotlight was, was being put. And Rick didn't fit at that time in that particular timeline of that story. You know, it, it wasn't Rick's time. He was still important, and we certainly didn't want the audience to forget about him or we didn't want to necessarily marginalize him in terms of being a, a, a key part of WCW and still get a lot of t- television time. But was he in that top spot? No, he wasn't. And I, and I don't think that that was necessarily a bad choice. Again, in that time. However, the way I went about it pretty much sucked and reflected a, a lack of maturity on my part and experience on my part. Let's talk and about sensitivity it. And sensitivity more than anything else. That's the part that I regret.
0: Well, very well put. Uh, Rick wrote in his book, Once, when I questioned why he was having me lose to Conan, he shouted at me me in the dressing room hallway, why are you always complaining about something? Just fucking do what we write down. This is a team. This isn't about you anymore, Rick. Wow. Do you remember that conversation? When I finished that quote, you said, wow. No, I don't recall that conversation. Look, and again, I,
1: I can be accused and justifiably and rightfully so of handling things Um inappropriately sometimes, or I could have handled things better. But I, you know, other than an argument that I got into with Eddie Guerrero once, and I think we were in El Paso. I'd never raised my voice to anybody. I mean, I'd get hot and I'd, I'd show emotion, but I never singled out. I never looked at a wrestler, looked at him. First of all, you know, it's just not the way I handle things.
0: No, well, I you and you, you I've had disagreements, and you—you're not a yeller.
1: No, I'm not a yeller. Now, I, I mean, I'll get hot, yeah, and I'll—I'll I'll, I'll stand up for what I think is right, but I would never yell across the locker room in front of a bunch of other people, and and shit on somebody like Ric Flair or. Anybody else, for that matter, a, a new guy, a green guy coming through the door, because that would that would have reflected badly on me. That would make me look like a jackass. And I would have just because I wouldn't want to look like a jackass. I would never would have talked to anybody like that. Now, maybe privately, if we were locked in an office and it, it got heated and we were really going at it. Maybe. Yeah, I would. If I really believed in what I was saying, but Never openly like that that's just it didn't happen not like that
0: he would write the differences between eric bischoff and vince mcmahon were striking vince wants his wrestlers to respect each other bischoff didn't care because i don't think he respected anyone else it got to the point that when i saw eric backstage or in the airport we barely even made small talk i knew what he was an asshole and there was nothing for us to talk about eric knew if he had used me as a top guy nobody could get over me Hogan knew it too. What do you make of those comments?
1: It sounds like some bitterness there. You know, remember that Rick Rick was the one. Rick. Nobody was more enthusiastic about bringing Hulk Hogan in than Rick. Nobody was more enthusiastic about doing a job for Hulk Hogan than Rick. Rick wanted to be the heel to Hulk Hogan's babyface because that was a perfect role for 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 Rick. So you know when I, you know. I don't know when this book was written, but it sounds to me like it was written in a period of time when there was a lot of bitterness and a lot of anger. And, and, you know, I was often the target of that from guys who were now in WWE or WWF at that time. Um, So it doesn't surprise me, but it's just, it doesn't reflect what was really going on. What was really going on is I, I, I enjoy, I loved Rick, I mean, what he's not talking about here, or what we haven't covered is, you know, when he was on the booking committee and he and his family, you know, all of them would come down to the Disney MGM studios and his family and my family were all staying at the yacht club together and we became very close friends. There was, and, and that's why it, it, when I hear some of this stuff that supposedly happened during that period of time, when I, when I treated him like dirt, it just didn't happen. He was a friend. Now, granted, in 96, when my attention shifted and when the NWO became the focus of the company, and by the way, rightfully so, because it was the first time in the history of the company that it was ever making any money. So it wasn't like I was just doing it because I was a mark or because I was friends with Hulk Hogan or wanted to be, or Scott Hall or Kevin Nash. It was happening, and the shift of focus and the energy that was being put into NWO was being put into it because it was the first thing, it was the first time that we'd ever made any money. And it had to be that way. And what happened with Rick is he started feeling less significant. He felt less important to the company. He felt less important to me. This is where I fucked up. Because rather than communicating which I could have done much more effectively than I did. I didn't, I was so focused on what not, I'm not making an excuse. It was horrible. It's, you know, I can't say enough how shitty I feel about it, but it is what it is. It wasn't because I didn't respect Rick. It wasn't because I, I, I didn't like Rick. It wasn't because I didn't think he had any value. It was quite the opposite, frankly. But the, the truth was all of the focus was going somewhere else and not on Rick. And it affected Rick. And, and, you know, it made him angry <laughs> and it caused a lot of problems.
0: You know what you're saying makes a lot of sense until you hear the testimony of a lot of other folks. David Crockett wrote, I think Eric and Rick got along for a period of time, but then Eric's ego seemed to get in the way. He was a creative person and he put himself on television. He made himself the boss of the NWO after a while, and he wasn't able to step back and keep things at arm's length. It was just like dusty and Hogan was Eric's guy. So Rick was left as the weak sister. Jericho would write, for whatever reason, Eric always seemed to have a vendetta against Rick. Maybe it was because Rick was the one big star that he couldn't take credit for or create or buy from the World Wrestling Federation. I don't know, but there was definitely some heat there. And Chris even details a story, and this is something that a lot of people have heard about. It was all over the newsletters back in the day, a 20-plus-year-old story here. Chris wrote, before one show we had a big meeting backstage and Eric was giving us this speech about how he was going to put Vince out of business in six months guaranteed and he knew how to do it. The rest of the guys didn't because Eric said nobody in the room had ever drawn a dime except for Hogan, Savage, and Piper. Ric Flair, one of the greatest draws of all time, was sitting right there and everybody's kind of looking at him and he just had to take it. It was a very bad atmosphere. Chat me up. You say you don't disrespect him. It wasn't about that. Isn't that exactly what that is?
1: Yep, it is. And that that is a, you know, David Crockett's perspective is David's. um, I'm not going to argue with somebody's perspective, but the account, the way you've laid it out to me is pretty much accurate. And I remember when I said it, I went, shit, (laughs) that's not good. And, and, but I, I said it, I'm not going to deny it.
0: So you didn't, um, you I'm didn't not, mean to exclude him. You just, it slipped your mind and you realized.
1: No, it's not that I look. It, here's, here's why this is hard. Here's why I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating because I can tell you why, why I said what I said. And by the way, I was probably for the most part, accurate. NWA went out of business. They went into Bankruptcy. And everybody can point the fingers in a 100 different directions as to why, but it's a fact. They went into bankruptcy. That's where Ted Turner bought them. And, oh, by the way, WCW, before I got there, was losing money hand over fist. WCW, while I was there, was losing money hand over fist. So my point in that speech was probably should have been stated more along the lines of, look, guys, you may not like what's going on. You may not like the, f- the focus where the focus is. But guess what? This is the first time we've ever really made any money. Now, the fact that I pointed to Hogan and I pointed to Savage while Riff Flair was sitting there, I should have been smarter. I, sh- I wished I would have been more experienced. I wish I would would have been better at managing talent because managing talent is not like managing any other commodity. They're, they're people. They have feelings. They have egos. Every one of those guys in the locker room, including the ones that you you reference, whether it be Jericho or David Crockett or Ric Flair or Arn Anderson, you name it. If they're a performer, they're a performer because they're driven by their ego, and usually along with that comes a, a copious amount of pride. And when you when you kick them in the balls, the way I did in that speech, that was accurately. Written about by Jericho, um, I inadvertently kicked him into ball kicked Rick into balls. I didn't mean to I was trying to make a point, and I made it in a very horrible way with regards to you know maintaining a relationship with Rick and others. It wasn't just Rick Arne Anderson heard the same thing I mean there were a lot of guys there that that could have and should have taken exception to the way I framed that point and you know. I did it. That's just not going to make any excuses for it. I did it.
0: Uh, Let's keep going here. Let's talk about April of 1998. This is really why we're here, but I wanted to sort of lay the groundwork. I didn't know when we would really talk about that again. But April of 98 is when the shit really hits the fan. Rick would write, in April of 98, my son Reed qualified for the AAU National Wrestling Tournament in the 110-pound weight class. He was only 10, and our family was really looking forward to it. I let the company know that I was going to be there with him, and Eric was in Japan, so he called to say I couldn't go to the tournament, and they suddenly needed me in Tallahassee for WCW Thunder, the second-rate show the company aired on TBS on Thursday nights. I hadn't been on Thunder for a month, but now they offered to charter a plane to fly me to Tallahassee from Detroit, where the tournament was happening, on the condition that I paid half of the airfare. If Hogan needed a plane, would they make him pay half the airfare? fuck that, I told the company no. Eric fired me from Japan and then sued me for breach of contract, except I didn't have a contract. There was only that letter of intent that I had rejected. The company said that my absence on a single edition of Thunder had cost them around 2 million bucks, a pretty interesting number, since I was getting paid just a quarter of that to work a full year. Now, that's Flair's account you wrote in your book. We found ourselves in a real fight with the WWE and Ric Flair went AWOL. His absence from the ring in April 98 led to a bitter dispute. Because of it, he didn't wrestle for several months. Rick has been vocal in his point of view, and he contends that he gave me proper notice and was entitled to take the time off. While I don't want to not talk about the controversy, I also don't want to take cheap shots at Ric Flair or even give the impression that I am. In my opinion, he was in breach of contract. Obviously, we have different views of what happened. So, what really happened?
1: What really happened from my point of view was that he didn't have permission to take time off. He was scheduled, he was advertised, he was promoted and he was under contract. We didn't put people on television who weren't under contract. Fact, look it up. There's nobody on WCW TV in 96, 97, and 98 who wasn't under contract. So the premise that he's laying out that his author in that book laid out there is a false premise. It's just not true. Now, Rick did decide he was he wanted to go uh, to his son's wrestling tournament. I understand that. He just didn't communicate it to anybody. He just didn't show up. He just or he, if he did communicate it, he communicated it to the wrong people. Janie didn't know anything about it, and Janie was the she was the nerve center. That's the type of thing that Janie managed for us. We talked about Janie in the la- Janie Engel in the, in the last episode. She was my executive assistant. She didn't know anything about it. Nobody knew anything about it but Rick. And he might have mentioned it to a Terry Taylor or to Kevin Sullivan or to somebody else that didn't really matter with regard to this particular situation. But he didn't get approval from me or, or from anybody, from Nick Lambrose. Or from any from anybody else that would had have to have approved him not appearing uh, per per his agreement that he did have by the way, um, so it's just it's not accurate, you know it's just not, and where where it got ugly is Rick dug in, you know I mean it was important to him and again this is another thing especially, you know. Fuck, I hate even talking about this stuff, man. I mean, Reed Reed's passed away, and it's it's right. hard to even have this conversation, and and do it justice under this the circumstances. But, you know, Rick wanted to be there for Reed, and I understood that I did. But here's the other part of the, here's the other side of the equation that you know, wrestlers, any of them, you know, they know that they they know all about what goes on inside of a wrestling ring, but none of them have ever had to deal with a business of any business, but but the wrestling business in particular. And Rick drew a line in the sand. Rick did not Eric. Rick is the one that chose not to show up um, for a variety of appearances. That was his choice. He made it. He forced me into doing something I didn't want to do, but I did decide with Turner Legal, it wasn't my sole decision. Um, as we've discussed many, many times, I didn't have the authority to make legal decisions without running them through Turner Legal first. And they had to feel justified in, in those decisions. But he, I was faced with a situation where I'm either going to let, as, as many people have accused me in the past of just letting the inmates run the asylum. And that means, well, if Ric Flair's got a contract and he doesn't have to show up for his appearances, why does anybody else? Now I've got 110 guys that are under contract that are going to decide when they're going to show up and when they're not going to show up and how they're going to communicate their needs for time off. And I couldn't do that. There had to be a price to pay um, for breaching or not living up to, to the terms of an agreement. And it was unfortunate that it was Rick. I wish it would have been somebody else. But believe me, because it 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 I, I took a lot of heat for that. But I had to do it. Otherwise, like I said, there would have been 110 other guys that would have gone, oh, well, Rick's got a contract and he decides which weekends he wants to work and which weekends he doesn't, so I'm going to do it too.
0: I'm really, really glad you said that because I was trying to find a way to pitch it or present it where you wouldn't just immediately say, no, that's not true. But it does feel like, and, and the timing of all this is, is interesting because it happens in April of 98, which coincidentally is when you guys do start to slip in the rating for the first time in 83 weeks. And that's when the famous Raw with McMahon and Austin happened. And you're feeling a little bit of pressure there. They're on the heels of WrestleMania 14 that obviously did really, really strong business. And you can maybe feel that, hey, I'm losing the grip a little bit. And at the same time, you're hearing all that inmates are running the asylum, it does feel like you probably need to make an example of someone, which isn't always a fun thing to talk about because it does feel like you're singling someone out. But sometimes if you're managing a big crew, you've got to do that. You've got to be able to draw the line and everybody else sort of has to see and learn where the line is. Is that fair to say that it really was just a bit of the inmates running the asylum and an and example uh, needed to be made. A line in the sand needed to be drawn that you weren't going to put up with this shit anymore.
1: Well, let's be clear. I mean, there were, it's not like we didn't have other situations that would come up from time to time, but nobody up until that point said, I'm just not going to show up. Nobody ever did that. Uh, it, it, it wasn't like there were a bunch of un- other inmates that were trying to do the same thing. This was an isolated kind of non-precedent issue, uh, or precedent that I should say. It had never happened before. And, because it was Rick and because it was so high profile, yes, to answer your question, we had to make an example, unfortunately, out of Rick. And Rick, Rick singled himself out. I didn't single Rick out. Rick made the choice that he, wasn't good, he drew a line in the sand and he was going to live with his decision. And I had to step up to that line in the sand and live with mine. And it was unfortunate. But, yeah, I mean, I, I can't say anything more about it. I did what I had to do. He did what he felt he had to do.
0: You didn't think prior to this that any guys and I understand what you're saying, but it does feel a little bit like splitting hairs that they said, oh, "I'm just not going to show up." You never felt like before this that some of the guys were like, "Oh, I can't come. I'm sick. Oh, I can't come. I'm hurt." And you questioned the legitimacy of that? Oh, of
1: course. Yeah. Of okay. course. But here's here's no, no, you guys said, "Oh, I've got a sore throat. I can't make TV." No, that never happened. Right. You know, um did were there situations where, you know, I get a phone call? Oh, I, I tore a quad, I blew out a knee, my back, I injured my back in a match. That um, I question the veracity of that? Absolutely. But you're also facing a situation with a situation in a company like WCW was, and Turner Broadcasting was, and contracts being what they are, it's not like you're going to force somebody to work if they say they've got a legitimate injury because you're opening yourself up to all kinds of horrible legal shit. So you have to deal with it, as the case was, or as as the cases were. But to answer your question, yeah, I felt like I was getting, you know, bullshitted, half the time when when we'd hear about injuries that's why we had trainers that's why we had a process so our own doctors and our own trainers could either you know validate or invalidate you know somebody's issues but if somebody's away from from a television taping and somebody's not in Atlanta and they say they hurt their back training or they did something they otherwise injured themselves in a house show and didn't report it for whatever reason you know you had to deal with it but it doesn't mean i believed it
0: so the line here basically is Flair didn't have the decency to fake an injury. No, he, I didn't say that. <laughs> I know, Flair. but I'm just saying that, hypothetically, had <laughs> he called and said, "Oh, Rick, I mean, uh, Eric, I pulled my back uh, lifting weights. I'm not going to be at TV." I mean, yeah, that's that's shitty, and that's not true. But in the end, you probably got a bullshit excuse like that dozens of times.
1: Yeah, but, the, but again, there would have been a process. If, if somebody would have said, no, if it was for one television taping, yeah, we probably would have figured it out, right? right? But for someone who's been advertised and promoted, who's under contract, who's making a half a million dollars a year or more um, to all of a sudden decide they're just not going to show up because they wanted to go to a, a, an event, a family event, it was not cool. Now what you're saying to me is if he would have, and I don't do hypothetical, and you know no, I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how I would have handled it. Maybe I would have made him go to a WCW doctor, and and get an exam. I don't know. I don't like to go there because it's silly. But the case that we're talking about was Rick decided he wasn't going to go because he wanted to go do something else with his family, and I didn't find that acceptable.
0: Let's um, let's reference here that the main event of that show, um. Well, let's just run through the whole card. Perry Saturn over Tokyo Magnum, Prince Iakea over Yuji Nagata, Chris Benoit over Conan, Jim Duggan over Kurt Hennig, uh, Lex Luger over Glacier, Billy Kidman over Psychosis, Scott Steiner over Disco Inferno, WCW television champion Booker T defeated the Cruiserweight champion Chris Jericho uh, by DQ, and Rick Steiner beat Kevin Nash by DQ. And then you guys ran a couple of house shows. uh, Fresh off of uh, Tallahassee, you ran Montgomery uh, with DDP and Kevin Nash on top. And then Chattanooga, again, DDP and Kevin Nash on top. And then on Monday in Minneapolis at the Target Center, April 13th, Flair's not there. And this is directly from the WCW Nitro book. Flair no-showed the event we just talked about, so he missed that thunder and... He's even missing the April 13th Nitro here in Minneapolis. Now, six weeks prior to this, he was here in Minneapolis uh, doing an autograph session to try to help sell tickets to the event. It works. They sell that show out in less than 48 hours. And the state governor even says he has plans to establish a Ric Flair Day in his honor. But before Ric Flair Day becomes a thing, he's not here. And Bischoff delivers his own tribute on April 13th, where, and this is directly from the book, only two weeks removed from the sixth fiasco, Bischoff reputed, reportedly threatened that he would sue Flair for breach of contract. And as the room full of high priced talent looked on, the rhetoric grew increasingly extreme. I'm going to star Flair, Bischoff allegedly promised. I'm going to cause him to move out to the streets. That's directly from the WCW Nitro book, and we've all heard a version of this story, where you announced to everybody all the boys what's going on, and I found it ironic that it happened in an arena where Flair helped sell the tickets, and they sort of teased the idea of a Ric Flair Day, and by the time the show actually happens, instead, you're addressing the boys. Uh, no,
1: what- I'm addressing. I'm addressing the. So I mean, it's interesting how you set that up. So, yeah, we did send Rick to to help sell tickets. You know, first of all, let's not kid ourselves into thinking the only reason that that event sold out. Oh, was no, because no, Rick, no, r- 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 I know. But let me just let me just a couple points here. You covered a lot of ground. Yes, Rick did go. Rick was a big deal in Minnesota. Rick's Rick had wrestling roots. Rick trained in, under in in, in in Minnesota. It's where Rick really started his career. So Rick had, you know, a great fan base in in Minnesota. No doubt about that. Rick did help sell a lot of tickets. No doubt about that. Which made him no showing the event even more um, of an issue for me. When you advertise somebody, when somebody shows up six weeks in advance and interacts with the fans and they buy tickets because in, in part because this individual is there, and then an individual decides not to show up. Hang on, no, didn't he fire him before that, this? No, we were in a lawsuit. I didn't fire him.
0: Okay, so so Flair's account in his book where he says he fired me from Japan, not true. I don't
1: know what he's talking about.
0: So when you're in a Seattle, I can't.
1: Home. I I don't run Japan, so I couldn't fire anybody from Japan. And we, it, it, it,
0: it's it, just no, no. Hang on, I, much, think, look, I think I think I think we're I think you're confusing what I'm saying. He says he was on the phone with you, when he's supposed to be. You're trying to tell him you can't go to Detroit, you got to go do this. He says that phone call happened when you were, your person, you physically, were in Japan. And... No, it didn't happen. Okay. It, didn't,
1: it just did not happen. First of all, just look at the, look at the two storylines that we're trying to, to, to isolate here. One is that we're in a lawsuit. If I would have already fired him, why would I, why would I be telling everybody that we're going to sue him into submission? Which, by the way, I did say. My, my goal wasn't to fire Rick. My goal was to enforce the contract that we had with Rick and to establish to the rest of the talent that once you sign a contract, you have to live up to its obligations and you don't have the luxury of picking and choosing where and when you do. That's why I gave the, the speech. And by the way, the, the, the speech, you know, Guy Evans wasn't in the room. He's reporting what somebody who was in the room probably told him. Let, let me be a little bit more accurate. Uh, because I do remember it. It was a very uncomfortable moment for me. And my back was definitely up against the wall because now, I mean, he, Rick was pushing the envelope way farther than I ever thought that he would. And I did want to make an example out of him. And I didn't say I would sue him or I'd make sure he was living on the street or anything like that. What I did say is that I was going to sue him into bankruptcy because I wasn't going to pay him. And by the way, we didn't. We stopped payment on his agreement f- for for a period of time. We then decided to go ahead and keep paying him because as long as we kept paying him and he wasn't showing up, he was further and further and further into breach. And I wanted to get him so far into breach that he had nowhere else to turn. My point was I wanted to – I knew we had to hire attorneys because we were going to send attorneys after him. We had to. Otherwise, the rest of the contracts we had wouldn't have been worth the paper that it took to write them on. So the, the idea was, let's just fight this out in court. Let's make him spend a lot of money trying to defend the indefensible. You don't get to pick and choose where and when you want to work when you have a contract that says otherwise. So I did give a big speech, and I did say to everybody, and Arn Anderson was in the room, and I did make it clear that I was going to do my best to sue Ric Flair into bankruptcy, if that's what it took to, to straighten this situation out. I wasn't going to back down. That I did say.
0: Uh, It was written in The Torch. Eric Bischoff announced to the locker room full of wrestlers on Monday night, April 13th at Nitro that he was going to make an example out of Ric Flair. He said Ric Flair is a liar, but everybody lets him get away with it because he's Ric Flair. As it now stands, Flair may never appear on WCW television again, but whether or not he will be free to join the WWF will have to take WCW to court to free himself from his contract or will simply be forced to retire, which isn't clear at this point. And he's referencing, he being Wade Keller, pronouns pal, uh, that Flair had been backstage at a lot of Nitros and Thunders and not used. And it's even written in the torch, recently WCW began telling him to stay home and not even attend Nitros and Thunders. And he had plane tickets to the Tuesday and Wednesday house shows last week, but had a ticket that flew him home after Wednesday's show. If Flair didn't ask for the Thursday off, he certainly had fair reason to believe he wasn't going to be used. WCW, though, wrote into Flair's new three-year contract at the beginning of the year that he would be required to be available for all Nitros and Thunders. WCW is disorganized enough that they want the freedom to call a wrestler on one day's notice and expect them to be available for either a Nitro or a Thunder, and when Flair no-showed Thunder, Bischoff began telling people he was thinking of making an example of him. What
1: that meant. that's not true that's not you know, I can't let you just go on and on and on and on because you're covering so much ground. That is simply not true. Wade Keller doesn't know what the fuck Wade Keller is talking about and I like Wade. we're good. Wade Wade and I are good but for him to write that much granular detail in a situation he had no firsthand knowledge of means that somebody Rick fed him that perspective. Somebody fed him that information. Because Wade Keller would not have known in any way, shape, or form what the travel arrangements would or wouldn't have been for a Nitro or Thunder or when Rick got tickets or what WCW was thinking or what Ric Flair should have been thinking. It's just, it's just the, it's the type of nonsense that, you know, dirt sheets back in this period of time, it's what drove them. It's what drove their, their viewership or their readership. And it's just flat out wrong.
0: So you're, uh, can you, I mean, obviously this is so granular that there's no chance you remember, but I've got to just take a stab. What do you make of this report that he had tickets that flew him home on Wednesday, which made him think certainly whether he had the conversation about Reed's thing is a separate topic.
1: I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that it's true. I, I mean, I can't comment on it. There's no, just because Wade Keller wrote it doesn't mean it was true. Sure. And I can't comment on something that I don't believe is true. Does it? I I just there's no way of knowing.
0: In your opinion, was it WCW's prerogative to just say, "Hey, you have to at least be available for thunders and nitros on a day's notice"? And by the way, while Wade Keller makes it seem like that's a big deal, that's the way the WWF or WWE works today. That's not that different.
1: No, it's not that different. And that's again, that's. Look and I don't have a you know an old WCW agreement in front of me, and I certainly don't sure. have a Claire's agreement sitting in front of me, so I don't know what the exact language is, but wrestlers were to be available. you know was there probably some language in there that gave them a, a, a certain amount of notice? Yes, but they needed they all needed to consider the, themselves booked, especially for Nitro and thunder, especially for Nitro and thunder. And yes there were times just like there is times today when there are people you know in the WWE backstage area that aren't being used on Raw it happens and yes, things change creatively. They changed creatively for WCW right up until Showtime, just like today. They change right up until Showtime, despite despite the fact 20-some-odd writers spent an entire week writing a show, only to have Vince McMahon show up at the last minute and tear it all up and say, now nah, start over. I don't care it's, that it's 530 and we're going up in three hours or two and a half hours. This shit happens with live television. People get hurt. Ideas change. Flights cancel, all kinds of shit happens that made us make sure the talents needed to be at those events. Those were our bread and butter. And somebody like Wade Keller or a Dave Meltzer or anybody else that were writing about how WCW was disorganized at the time have clearly never run a business like WCW or WWE because they don't know from which th- from where they speak.
0: Well, you were speaking on that thunder that uh, Rick missed. You come out on TV and call Shivani a liar for saying Flair would have been there had it not been for the weather. You said, quote, you come out here and make excuses for Rick Flair. I'm going to tell you why Rick Flair isn't here tonight. Rick Flair wakes up every morning, looks in the mirror, and sees that big beak on his face he calls a nose and that bleach blonde hair and looks back on his career and says, why can't I be remembered as the greatest wrestler in the history of this industry? Why can't I be Hollywood Hogan? And you said that Hogan built the Empire of WCW, not Flair, and that Flair had to wake up to read that Hogan's movie, Three Ninjas, opened that night. And then a trailer runs for the new movie. And, um, you know, then we bring Arn out. And you're calling Flair a coward. And Arn does a promo where he says, six months ago I might have retired, but I didn't die. And if you didn't walk around backstage with your nose stuck in your ear, you might notice that and he says that you're not respecting who Ric Flair is, and you called Arn Fatso and referred to Flair as garbage and said he'll be treated that way. So, this doesn't age well when you recognize that, hey, this isn't just part of a storyline, there's no payoff here. You're just fucking mad.
1: No, that's not true. First of all, I was a heel. Second of all, and I, we've talked about this forever, since we've been doing these podcasts. I was setting up Nitro and WCW, Nitro and Thunder. I was doing everything I could to make the best of the situation. I was taking real life and making it into art like we had previously with Scott and Kevin and a lot of the other things that we were doing um, that worked. And yeah, I took the real life situation because everybody knew about it. Everybody knew about it. And rather than pretend it wasn't happening, I wove it into a storyline. I, 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 I said exactly what I said to put heat on myself. I said exactly what I said to put heat on Hogan. I said exactly what I said to to, to – established the NWO is being even more hated by traditional WCW fans. That was the premise of the angle from the get-go. And I took this situation and I turned the volume up. I threw gasoline on it and just to make sure a little napalm and I lit it because it was either that and try to make it work for me or pretend it wasn't happening.
0: I did it. Well, the difference. I'd do it again. The difference between this and the NWO angle you were proposing, where you talked about reality, is those guys weren't disputing their contract. They're going to be there next week, and you don't know that that's the case here. So you took this as an opportunity to get yourself over at the expense of a real life situation.
1: Mm, you could look at it that way. I didn't. I looked at. I wasn't trying to get myself over. I mean,
0: that's you just said. You just said you did. You said I was a heel.
1: No, I. I. Well, I was a heel. But I wasn't trying to get myself over. I was trying to put heat on myself. I was trying I was trying to make people hate me even more than they already did. I
0: mean, that's the was same thing. Make... We're splitting hairs well, there.
1: Okay. Yeah. All right. We're splitting hairs. I was trying to get people to hate Hulk Hogan more than they already did. Sure. I took this situation at hand that was obvious, and, and, and most people, many people, were aware of it. And I decided I can either ignore it or I can throw it into the pot of stew, stir it up a little bit, turn up the heat, and make it work or try to. And that's what I chose to do. And if I was faced with the same situation today, I would probably do the same thing.
0: I do want to ask, because obviously this didn't happen, but it was written in the Observer that the idea was uh, that was supposed to happen, that he missed on the April 9th episode of Thunder in Tallahassee, and we just referenced what did happen with you and Arn was supposed to be the reformation of the Four Horsemen, which at the time, and I can't believe this is real, the plans were to include Bill Goldberg and Lex Luger with one other individual, not Chris Benoit, and use Arn Anderson as the manager of the group. And everybody, in, in every various account that I saw on this, whether it was the WCW Nitro book or whatever, said that the reformation of the Horsemen was why you needed him in Thunder. Do you recall if that was the case, and if so, what names were floated? Now, as a reminder, because I know a lot of people hear Bill Goldberg and say, that's not fucking true, this is April of 98. This is a few months before Goldberg becomes Goldberg.
1: Okay, that part isn't true. I don't know where this shit came from. It's not true. What was true is we did want to reform the horsemen, we did want to establish that WCW versus NWO, Thunder versus Nitro. That we—I mean—I am mean, I, so sick of hearing myself say it. That part is true, but whoever came up with the Bill Goldberg and the Four Horsemen with Lex Luger, uh-uh, that part ain't true.
0: Well, what is true is that Reed kicked everyone's ass in that tournament, and he won. Uh, I guess that's worth mentioning. It's at the Pontiac Dome, brother. Uh, and he was in the 9-10 age group and the 112-pound weight class, and he captured the championship uh, in the uh, final match with a 9-3 score. So it's a big day for the Flair family. Best of times, worst of times. Um, Meltzer would write, Flair's new contract stipulations did call for him to be available for every television taping, and it was touch and go until Thursday when Bischoff returned from Japan and Flair wasn't in Tallahassee and a makeshift angle with Anderson, Bischoff, Scott Steiner, and Luger was thrown together. Bischoff was livid and openly talking about either firing Flair, which would be an irrational move given the lay of the land today, or suspending him, which appears to be the most likely alternative.
1: He was Uh, wrong on both counts, but go ahead. That's it. Yeah, he was wrong on both counts. There was no no way I was going to fire him. And there was no way I could. There was no. There was. There was really no provisions to suspend people. You know, I could suspend them with pay, but the minute I quit paying somebody, um, unless they were in breach, I would have been. Right. So, so all of that speculation from you know Mr. Meltzer is just more, you know, Dave Meltzer bullshit.
0: Oh gosh, I thought we were going to get through a week without that. Hey, so let me. No, ask. no, we're not. Okie doke. Uh, So let me ask. This is one of those things that uh, maybe gets glossed over, but what's winning on the other channel is the McMahon-Austin angle. Do you see this as an opportunity to sort of have your own WCW version of that here with you and Flair?
1: No. I mean, we started that earlier. I mean, the Austin, look, we started this. The groundwork for NWO versus WCW was started in 1996. Right that that's when it all started. So it wasn't like we just went, Hey, look what they're doing over there. Why don't we do ours over here? That's not the case at all. Okay. Let's it's talk. Coincidental. I mean, I think it's safer to say, Let, let's, let's call a spade a spade in, in November of 1990s. Go back and look at WWE or WWF throughout 96 and throughout ninety nine nineteen ninety seven. 1997. Look at the way they frame their stories. Look at the way they – in fact, I'm not even sure you can find a Monday Night Raw from 96 or 97 on the network, can you?
0: Yes, they're all there. You can? Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, go back and compare Nitro in 96 and and Raw in 96. Go back and compare Nitro in 97 and Raw in 97. And then all of a sudden in November, after they've been getting their ass kicked now for a couple of years – because we've we've changed the paradigm, as people like to say, it sounds so cool. Change the paradigm. Um, Vince McMahon goes on the air and gives this very eloquent, just beautiful speech about how we're going to listen to our fans and we're going to expand the creative uh, creative envelope and we're gonna, we're going to we're going to do things that have never been done before. Fuck off! You're just gonna you're just gonna copy the formula that's been kicking your ass for two weeks. That's what you're really gonna do. And then that's when the heel, you know, Vince McMahon finally emerges. Well, guess what? That's about a year and a half late. So we had already done a lot of the things and had been laying the groundwork for those things long before you saw them with, with McMahon and Austin.
0: Let's talk about the uh, the meeting. And I know you you sort of addressed it earlier, but I do want to give some other accounts. Rick would write in his book Um that you said to all the boys on the April 13th Nitro, look, Ric Flair's a liar and everyone gets, lets him get away with it because he's Ric Flair. Let him be Ric Flair. I'm going to sue him and his family into bankruptcy. And Rick would write a major executive of a major corporation actually said that about an employee in front of other employees. Not only is Bischoff a prick, they just don't come any dumber. Jericho, who was in attendance at that meeting says basically the tone of the meeting was that Ric Flair had fucked up bad. And now he's going to get blackballed out of the company. And Eric said he was going to make sure that Rick and his family starved. So nobody's really disputing that, uh, doesn't age well. Um, I don't know what else there is to say about the meeting. Tell us, you know, where you go from here and, and how you intended to move forward. Like when you finish the meeting, what's the, what's the mood, what's the tone and tenor? How do you feel like you're moving forward? And, uh, You've clearly sort of put it to bed for the guys, but internally inside the office, you've got to figure out, okay, what's next?
1: No, I didn't have to look from my point of view, it was now it was in the hands of the lawyers. There's nothing I could do about it. That the the bullet left the barrel. Once once Rick decided he was gonna draw his line in the sand, once the decision was made internally with Turner Legal and myself that we were gonna fight the fight and we were gonna take it all the way to the end. There was nothing for, There was nothing more for me to do other than try to make chicken salad out of chicken shit from a storyline and, and try to make it work for me as best I could. But in my mind, you know, it was out of my hands at that point. It was just up to the lawyers.
0: Once the lawyers get a hold of it, they discover that it is in his contract that he was supposed to, if he needed a night off, contact his agent who would then submit the request in writing with 10 days notice. And Flair says he asked for the date off months ago, but the WCW was disorganized and didn't acknowledge the notice. And you sort of challenged that and said that that couldn't have possibly been true because at that point you wouldn't have known that Reed was even qualified for the tournament. Do you remember it getting to that level of, I don't even know how to say this silliness. Like the idea, the idea that we're having this sort of, line drawn in the sand and, and, and everything's melting down with, you know, the number one, the number one wrestling executive in the world at the time. And arguably one of the greatest performers of all time over a single date in hindsight, it's it all wasn't a
1: single stuff. date. It was multiple days at that point. And it was, the issue was the issue. The issue was, do you get to decide when and where you want to work or do you have to live up to the terms of your agreement? That was the issue. And the, the, you know, as you pointed out, there was language and I'm glad you pointed it out. Thank you very much. There was language in everybody's agreement that address what you need to do if you want time off. And, you, he, he, you know, Rick can say, well, you know, WCW was disorganized. Well, that's the narrative. And it's largely true, by the way, not disputing it. But even if that were the case, and nobody in WCW offices could hit their hands, hit their ass with both hands. Which, by the way, Janie wasn't one of those people. Janie that would have come to Janie Engle, right? She was the number two person when it came to talent relations and anything that was critical to television, especially something uh, this high profile. Janie did not miss the boat. Janie Janie was buttoned up. And she never got that notice. And by the way, even if you just want to assume maybe Janie had a bad day or something else happened in WCW because everybody likes to talk about how disorganized it was, even if that were true, his agent would have had a copy of that letter.
0: By the way, I'm so glad you brought this up because I feel like this gets glossed over because this is where, as my friends say, the snot thickens. You... And I have both referenced. Well, he would have to request it through his agent. True or false? At the time, his agent is also your agent.
1: I didn't. Who, who's who's my agent? Barry Bloom. He would no, not then. Barry and I had parted company long before that.
0: Okay. It just uh, it feels a little like a, a shitstorm that Barry finds himself in because. He is the... No, he didn't find himself in it. He fucking created it. Even here, in your opinion? The way he handled it, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about that. Talk to me about the Barry Bloom angle and how you think he sort of contributed to this. Well, the
1: way he contributed to it was, and I've I've talked about this with you, I think, in the past. Barry Bloom and I were pretty good friends. Yeah. Barry Bloom and I... Barry Bloom did represent me, Um. And both you know and not so much in wrestling, because I negotiated my own deals. He never negotiated a deal for me inside of wrestling. But for things outside of wrestling, um, you know, he was trying to get get me some work outside of uh, wrestling. For example, he got me, I think I told you this before. He got me on e True Hollywood Story hosting the this show uh, one time over the Christmas holiday. Um, so, but Barry and I were tight, and I went to Barry. Early, God, I don't know when it was, 94, maybe 95, because as, as things were heating up and we were talking to more and more people that wanted representation, that were really unsure about contracts, didn't really want to go out and hire a $300 an hour attorney, felt like they needed some representation. I was comfortable that Barry could, could represent talent um, within WCW or to WCW and work for the talent. Because he understood the agreements, he understood the nature of the agreements, and it was cheaper for some talent to have an agent or a manager, in Barry's case, there's a difference, um, Barry is a manager taking 10% versus getting a, a $300 an hour attorney bill. So I encouraged talent to speak to Barry, and if they had questions about their their contracts or they felt uncomfortable about their contracts, I encouraged them to hire Barry. And engage with him. But the understanding that Barry and I had, because we were friends, was don't ever play both ends against the middle. Don't let me, don't agree for me or, or, or enjoy the benefits of me bringing you business and asking you to help people understand their agreements and then turn around and use those opportunities and that information against me down the road with WWF. If I find you playing both ends against the middle, that will be the end of our relationship. And that happened, I think, probably in 96 or seven, is, is exactly when that happened. So by now, in 1998, do you think I had a good working relationship with Barry
0: Bloom? No. It's just interesting no. that Barry Bloom is is in the middle of all these conversations. I mean, he had represented... You at one time tried to with Flair Waltman, you know, who has famously just jumped ship and is now on the other show. Not really jumped ship, you fired his ass, but he showed up on the other show. And it's just interesting that his name always pops up. It does feel like he's always in the middle of it.
1: What 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 does that suggest to you? Well, you know what it
0: suggests. <laughs> you know
1: it's fun. well. Let's paint the picture. Come on, I know. Yeah, I know you don't want to make Barry mad at you, but he's a. He, he, no, I've
0: never done he, any business with Barry. He asked for tickets to All In, and I, I gave him tickets in one of my suites to All In, and that's the extent of our business together. I don't have anything bad to say about Barry. I've never done any business with him, but I can certainly read between the lines here. That, well, roll tide. So let's talk a little bit about um, that night where you give the speech, because I do feel like this is sort of glossed over. You give the speech, you let everybody know what's going on, and because it's WCW, I feel like a lot of the guys, not even just WCW, that's not fair, because it's wrestling in 1998, a lot of the guys have to be wondering, ah, is Bischoff working the boys? Is this going to be an angle? Was there any sort of undercurrent with the guys that thought, hey, this is all just a big work and they're going to have a big payoff, especially when you had sort of cut a promo on him a few days prior at Thunder?
1: Probably. I mean, nobody came up to me and asked me. Nobody right. accused me of it. I didn't hear anybody, you know, talking when they didn't think I was within, you know, earshot. Um, but I can imagine they probably did because it was uncharacteristic of me, first of all, to, to do what I did and to give the speech that I gave and to talk about drawing a line in the sand and, you know, basically – you know, suing Ric Flair into bankruptcy, those words I did say, which were very, very uncharacteristic of me. So I would imagine, given the nature of the way we were creating television and 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 working people and using real life in and weaving it into story, I'd be surprised if people didn't think it was a work.
0: Well, what's what's interesting to me is on that very night when you're giving the speech and a lot of the guys have to think, Oh, this is going to be a work. That's the night that raw finally beats nitro. That's the night that 83 weeks, the streak ends that's week 84 raw finally wins. And it's with the Hogan, Mr. McMahon or not Hogan McMahon, but Austin McMahon storyline. So it's just interesting. A few days later, I guess we should mention, or a week later rather, uh, junior can't help himself, and actually name-drops Flair on the April 20th Raw show. Now, that's going to stir things up in a big way, which is what they're looking for here. And I'm sure there was no real concern on the WCW side, but I just have to ask, when when JR mentions Flair on Raw the next week, sort of hinting about the pay-per-view this weekend, which was Unforgiven, 1998, April 26th, and where is it? Greensboro, North Carolina, Flair Country, the home of Starcade. did it even cross your mind that he may try to show up there or that Vince McMahon may put him on TV, especially given all the back and forth wrangling you guys had had a few years prior with Hall and Nash?
1: No, there was no... Look, we knew we had him under contract. We knew that the contract was locked. There was no... There was no... There was no room for any maneuvering on Rick's part or WWE's part, particularly in light of the fact that we were already deeply engaged in litigation. So there was no concern that he might actually show up. Um, it did get under my skin a little bit. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a, an old wrestling kind of technique. You know, drop that name out there, convince people that there's a chance. It was a, it was a kind of a shitty thing to do for JR. I'm surprised they did it because if there were people who believed that Ric Flair might show up in in Greenville, and then they knew he wasn't going to. That's a um, pretty—that's just a classless move, promotionally. So that surprised me a little bit, but there was no concern that he actually would.
0: Did you hear the proposed idea? Because allegedly, Flair, while he never got a termination notice from WCW— which in theory wouldn't have allowed him to have any sort of contact or negotiations rather with the WWF. He did talk to the office and was circling the building that night in Greensboro riding shotgun with him is his son Reed. And they had come up with this idea of they could tease that there is a great wrestling champion sitting ringside and they would come over and, you know, do a little shout out to his son Reed who just won championship, which ultimately caused all of this shit with you two. And he would just be casually sitting there in the front row next to his son. Did you ever hear about that? No, (laughs) no. It's a shame.
1: It would have been good. It would have been good. It would have been a cool moment for Reed.
0: Oh, no doubt about it. I guess we should mention here. You did go ahead and file a very real $2 million lawsuit. So any sort of concerns as to whether or not this is working the boys, maybe not so much. Um, you're suing for breach of contract in Georgia. And it says that, uh, Flair has no showed and then quote played havoc with the script of the wildly popular productions and the suit alleged that Flair missed the April 9th thunder in Tallahassee, then the April 13th nitro in Minneapolis, the Saturday night taping the next day in Minnesota, and then a house show the following day also in Duluth, Minnesota. And it also, in this lawsuit, alleges that him not showing up for the planned recreation of the Four Horsemen and him as the leader has caused WCW to uh, lose significant time, money, and effort. Um, you even allegedly backstage mentioned on the pay-per-view that weekend, on the 19th, that you're going to keep him tied up until 2001 uh, when his contract is set to expire. So as you're sort of, you know, the lawsuit is rolling and, you know, he's sitting on the sidelines. Is there any communication between you and Rick at all after the fallout? Or when's the last time you actually spoke to Rick on the phone or in person through any of this?
1: There was no, once it got to the legal, once it got to litigation, then I would not have had any conversation with Rick it would have been attorney to attorney. So, no, there, there was no communication between Rick and I. Uh, in terms of when was the last time I, I talked to Rick, either on the phone or otherwise, leading up to all of this, I don't know. Probably a week or two before all the shit went down, be my guess.
0: The phone call, you know, where he says he's not coming, did you, I mean, did it end with a bunch of fuck you, fuck yous and hanging up on each other?
1: No, it didn't come to me. He didn't tell. He didn't tell that. I heard it through. I heard it through Janie.
0: In that call, you know when. You know, I guess part of the thing that Flair wrote in his book that sort of stuck out is that you guys wanted him to pay for half of the cost of the chartered plane, and he says, "Would they have made Hogan pay for that?" Do you respond to that? If
1: Rick opted to no-show or, or opted not to catch a flight or otherwise forced us to have to charter him to make his obligation. But if that charter flight was caused by Rick's actions or lack thereof, damn right we'd have made somebody else pay for half the flight. Why wouldn't we? Right. If If, if we had made arrangements to fly him first class as his contract r- required, and he chose not to make that flight, and the only way we could get him there is by charter. Then, yeah. Whether it was Hulk Hogan or anybody else.
0: Yes. Let's talk about um, a report from the Observer on the 15th. Um, oh, here we
1: go. Here we go. I we'll, had to go there.
0: Try to keep it clean if we can. You remained last week. Um He says a high ranking WCW official who was friends with both Bischoff and Flair was in the middle of attempting to work as an intermediary, trying to save the relationship and ended up making no headway. It is well known that there has been long-term animosity between Flair and Bischoff. Although nobody really seems to exactly put their finger on why. If this were true, who was trying to run interference? I have no idea. Okay. In my head, when I first read that, I thought, Maybe this is something that Crockett felt like he could help put the, put back together. No, I never... No. Did you have a conversation with him or Arn or anybody that you thought Flair had history with through any of this? Or was it just business nope. as usual? Fuck him.
1: No, no, no. See, see how you... See what you... Oh, it's just business as usual. Fuck him. Like, I didn't care at all. It's not true. But once it got to the point that it w- was at, once it got into litigation... I was out. There was, you know, there was no talking to David Crockett, there was no talking to Arne Anderson. I wouldn't have picked up the phone and talked to his wife Beth. You know, all that shit was off the table. That all, that all that was all gone. Once you get into litigation, then it's just attorney to attorney. It really is just business. Not because I oh, them, but because there's no other choice. You can't once you pull that trigger and now you've got lawyers working on things I I, I would have got my head handed to me if I would have started engaging in, you know, offline conversations behind my attorney's back, you know, with Ric Flair. It's just not how you handle a lawsuit. I don't know if you've ever been in one, but I can assure you if you're in a lawsuit with somebody and it's an intense one and it's a very high profile one and there's millions of dollars involved, your attorney does not want you having a separate conversation with anybody.
0: It just felt like to me you could have had a conversation before you filed the lawsuit. Maybe that's me. Mm-hmm. so let's, I don't know. let's talk about it um this This lawsuit gets tons of attention, probably more media attention than you or Flair expected. Everybody's talking about it, mm-hmm. and a lot of the tone in the sports talk world and the newsletters and amongst the wrestlers and the everybody. He's a little more sympathetic to Flair's side of, I needed to miss a date to go to my son's wrestling tournament than they are the Big Bad Corporation. Whether that's fair or not is a separate thing. You understand that's just the nature of the way those sort of things go. Are you getting any sort of pushback from Turner about the optics of this where you're sort of holding a guy up for going to his son's wrestling tournament?
1: Nope. No, they, Turner was very, very supportive because they saw what was happening. They also saw the risk of not taking action. They also saw what would happen. And if, in fact, they, they in large part convinced me that drawing that hard line in the sand was the right thing to do. Um, not that it wasn't already my idea, not that it wasn't already my instinct, by the way, but they were 100% behind that because they understood if you don't and you Again, just keep repeating it. You let 110 or 115 guys who are under contract decide when and where they're going to show up, you're out of business.
0: One of the things that um, is written in a lot of the newsletters is that as you guys start to have conversations in late April and early May about trying to reconcile, one of the things that you want personally is for Flair to address the wrestlers and apologize for no showing the events. Does that make sense? Sound like something you would have ever asked for?
1: Um, yeah. It, it does. Because that was one of my biggest concerns is it wasn't as much Rick. It was the ripple effect of what Rick did and how that was going to impact WCW going forward with all the rest of the talent. So I think, uh, yeah, it, it sounds like something that I would have done or said.
0: Let me ask, you know, you guys had just seen Sean Waltman leave WCW and go make a much bigger splash for the WWE than he was able to with WCW. Was there a concern that if you did come to some sort of impasse, I mean, clearly you want to keep him locked up in his contract, but did you think that, hey, they might be able to do something with him up there? And even though I've just sort of got him as a mid-card guy, I'm not just going to let him go over there and maybe be a game changer for them?
1: No, and again, you're putting, you know, you're suggesting that I was thinking something I wasn't thinking. We were going to use him in a very high-profile position with the Four Horsemen against the NWO, WCW versus, or, or Thunder versus Nitro. That was the intent, and we've covered that a lot on this show. So I don't think anybody should be confused as to whether or not I had a had a plan to use Rick in a very high-profile way. We did, according to the lawsuit, according to the damages, according to all of the things that I've talked about for years now leading up to this situation. That's number one. And number number two, there, I was absolutely not afraid that he was going to end up in WWF because the only way that he would have is if we let him and we weren't going to let him.
0: You know, one of the things that comes out in the back and forth especially in early june is that flair has yet to countersue, but his attorney is sending a letter to wcw threatening to do so and they're arguing that the the document that flair did sign is not ironclad and so therefore he'll be a free agent um, early the following year they contend that flair never signed the actual long-form contract And if some sort of settlement were to be reached, they want to renegotiate even the deal memo that they had sort of in theory agreed upon. What's (laughs) your, what's your recollection of this smorgasbord of bullshit here?
1: Yeah. Look, I'm not a lawyer and I don't try to pretend I am one. Um, that just sounds like a bunch of ambulance chasing lawyer bullshit. Um, I I can't comment on any more than that. I mean, it's just ridiculous. There was a contract. If there wasn't a contract, he would have gone to the WWF common sense. Just apply a little bit of common sense here. If, if there was loopholes, if there was something wrong with the letter agreement, if there was something wrong with it, and by the way, it wasn't a letter agreement. It was a contract. And if there would have been something wrong with it, believe me, Ric Flair would have been gone. By the way, there was nothing wrong with the contract. The contract was ironclad. He wasn't going anywhere until 2001. I don't care if he had a team of ambulance chasing attorneys from Charlotte telling us otherwise. It just wasn't a fact.
0: It came out at the time that WCW uh, was able to fire Rick only unless he was able to or unable to appear to work. And the situation wasn't rectified for 15 consecutive days. And there's also a clause in there that says that if he had some sort of career-ending injury, that he'd be paid in full for 30 days, and then WCW would have the option to terminate the rest of the contract but then still pay him 50% of what was due. You know, it wouldn't be wrestling if we didn't talk about, was there a fear that Flair may sort of claim some sort of injury and try to get paid and just bow out of wrestling for good here? And it is wrestling. This is the Lloyds of London group of guys who – once upon a time, everybody tried to take the insurance company for the ride. Was there a concern that that may be the next move here? No. No. And maybe
1: it should have been, but we weren't concerned about that.
0: So they're going back and forth trying to restructure. You know, they want $725,000 for the first two years and 500000 for the third year. And Rick would even write in his book, I had to sit out for five months without a paycheck while all this bullshit got cleared up. At one point, Bloom and Braverman orchestrated a meeting between Bischoff and myself in an Atlanta hotel, and like a fool, I met with them. Eric wanted to give me an ultimatum and implied that I could never possibly win my countersuit. What the hell is a divorce attorney going to do for you, he sneered in reference to Bill Deal, my lawyer in Charlotte. Bill, one of the most respected attorneys in the U.S., has always been known to kick ass and take names later, and John Taylor is equally tough when he has to be. They were both brilliant lawyers and I knew they would have eaten Turner's legal team for lunch. However, we all knew that if we took the case to trial, the time I would have to spend in court would have ended my wrestling career. So we agreed to make a deal with them. If I followed their advice to the end, I'd probably own a percentage of Time Warner right now, and Bischoff was trying to make it sound like he was a small-timer specializing in domestic law. Fuck you, I told Bischoff. He stood up and started to yell, but I didn't even bother listening. I just left the room. Not a lot of people talk about this meeting. What do you remember about it? Didn't happen.
1: I didn't mean, I wouldn't, I I just can't overemphasize how, how much I would have been breaking protocol at Turner Broadcasting, how much I would have had my head handed to me by Turner Legal, who didn't work for WCW. They didn't work for me. Um, if I would have had a secret meeting with with Rick in a hotel, uh, kind of under the radar to try to work this out, I would have gotten killed, killed. It didn't happen. and if it if it would have happened, I would not have been in a meeting with Rick Flair and stood up and yelled at him. It just I don't know what to say, man. It sounds to me like the, the whoever wrote Rick's book, took a lot of little bits and pieces of fragmented information and tried to string it all together to make a really good book. But it, this—it just didn't happen. It, even if I would have wanted that to happen, it could not have happened. Let's talk about I mean, it. There's only, a, there's only a couple of things that you, that I c- could have probably gotten fired for in 98 at Turner broadcasting. But you know, both of them would have been two of them would have been defying or going against, um, Turner Corporate Finance, somehow trying to work behind their back and manipulating books or numbers or trying to achieve something that I wasn't supposed to achieve uh, that has that—that that wasn't already approved by Turner Finance. That would have been one way I would have caught a bullet. And the other way I would have caught a bullet is doing something surreptitiously to work around Turner Legal. And the only way there would have been a meeting with Ric Flair in a hotel room would have been if there was a lawyer present. And the only way Rick would have showed up at that meeting in that situation is if one of his lawyers would have been present. That's just the way it works.
0: Let's talk about the letter of agreement that Flair Greasy signed. It called for him to get first-class air, hotel accommodations, and $500 per appearance for limousine service. And he also was to receive $3,750 for each appearance past the 130-day maximum in his third year of his contract, which would have paid him $500,000 as a base salary and sort of the sticking point here that everybody is arguing in court or back and forth with the lawyers rather is that flair wrote something in the margins that is a handwritten note here and it says if subject to review and mutual acceptance it feels like Ridiculous that we're having this conversation, but are you privy to any of these conversations as they're going back and forth about the, the sort of l- letter of acceptance uh, or letter is, of agreement the, rather? The,
1: the, and... this, this just sounds cartoonish. It does. To me. It does. It, it really does. And, and I can't comment on it because it's number one. Again, I can't overemphasize once things go to legal, I'm out. It's just out. I may get an update. Things are going great. Things are not going great. We'll let you know next week. I may get those kind of updates occasionally, or I would have back then, but this kind of minutiae and granular cartoony bullshit would have not ended up on my radar. Well, what probably, and I'm, not, and I'm not sure it really existed to begin with, to be honest, but whatever.
0: What probably does wind up on your radar is right before your historic Nitro at the Georgia Dome where Goldberg beat Hogan. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution runs an article on Ric Flair's status with WCW, and they're comparing his icon status in wrestling with now his new alternate life as a suburban dad and gym owner, and he says, If you don't have to take it, you shouldn't, and I just drew the line. I've been vented on one too many times, and they think they can take me off the air for six months and be done with me. 20 years ago, I was selling at every arena in the Southeast United States, and I've endured the test of time. I've made millions, I've spent millions, and they told me, you'll have a home here forever. You're the one and only Ric Flair. Famous last words. Um, I don't know how you put into the words mutual respect. I did a lot to the help that company and i have always been a big supporter of WCW. Then again, it doesn't mean you get a gold watch. It doesn't mean anything, but to me, it does. What do you take, or what's your take... When in your hometown, where Turner's based out of, it's your big sort of dog and pony show, Nitro, at the Georgia Dome. It's a big deal. And they're running a story on Flair's contract status. It's a bit of a black eye, is it not? Uh, Yes and no. We
1: did sell out that arena, though, didn't we?
0: Yeah, I mean, you drew a hell of a house. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So it didn't really matter, did
0: it? No, it didn't matter. But it does feel like something that tarnishes a big night.
1: No, it, it didn't tarnish a big night. It didn't have any impact on business. But what it was was a good move by his attorneys um, to get a story planted in Atlanta because the, the lawsuit was taking place in Georgia um, and probably in Atlanta. Um, so that was, it was a good move on their part. I would have done the same thing. I applaud them for getting. And by the way, I became friends with John Taylor and actually used John Taylor to negotiate my WWE contract several years later. So John was, a you know, I don't, I didn't recall, I don't think I ever met Bill Deal or had any conversations with him, but I did, um, with John Taylor and he was, he wasn't a tough guy. He wasn't somebody that would have wiped, you know, the floor with Turner lawyers, but he was a good lawyer and he was a fair guy and he was a smart guy and he was a rational, reasonable, reasonable guy. Um, and like I said that I hired, you know, a couple of years later, but that would, that was a John Taylor move to get that story planted in, in the Atlanta paper. And a good lawyer, a good litigator, will have those types of contacts. So it was a good move on their part. But it didn't have any, you know, it certainly didn't affect um, ticket sales. It didn't really affect much of anything. But it was a good story. And it probably, possibly, could have affected a juror pool if, if one would have ever had to been assembled, which is probably another reason they did it.
0: In late July... Uh, Bruce Mitchell interviewed Ric Flair and they actually talked about the possibility of joining the WWF. And of course, Rick is putting it over huge. I see it as being a golden opportunity for me. And he goes on to talk about everything that happened with WCW and uh, they take a call and someone asks, I found this funny. uh, Has he ever known of a wrestler to be banned from wrestling? Quote unquote. And Rick said, the only person I've ever known who was banned from professional wrestling is me right now and laughed Uh, Let's fast forward to August. Meltzer would report that don't expect anything anytime soon on the Ric Flair update until a judge makes a ruling because everybody is steadfast. And Bischoff is privately suggesting that maybe they'll do a horseman angle without Ric Flair. Do you remember ever that being discussed at any point?
1: I don't remember it being discussed, but it probably was. Um, We were looking at all options. Um I'm sure it was discussed at some point. I just, you know, I don't recall the details of it.
0: Mike Mooneyham actually has an article in the Charleston Post Courier that even appears on AOL where McMahon is heavily praising Ric Flair. Um, And that makes a lot of people start talking again. He writes, I think it speaks volumes as to what kind of company they either are or aren't. Uh, that's the name of the tune, and I don't want to be knocking my competition too much other than Ted. I have too much respect for somebody like a Ric Flair to ever say anything derogatory about him to anybody. That's the worst thing you can do. It's bad for morale. If he's going to walk into a locker room and knock an icon like Ric Flair, who's done so much for this business, that just doesn't make sense. And he also said, I'd love to have Rick be a part of the WWF. He would do very well. In some ways, he's countered our direction in terms of being contemporary and that youthful vibrance that we have, but he really is a man for all seasons. He has such a wide appeal, and he has the ability to relate to a younger audience. You can sense that. He truly is an icon in this business. I've always enjoyed Rick's work and his personality and work ethic. When you see Vince McMahon sort of taking you to task and praising Rick, get anything going in the belly when you read that? No. No. No, it, it didn't
1: then. But I'll, I'll tell you what, as you read it, because I don't remember reading it. I don't think I did read it. I don't think I paid any attention to it, frankly. Um, but as I hear it today, that's that. That really is who Vince is. I mean, it, it. It wasn't to me the impression that I have hearing it right now. Now that I know Vince McMahon a little bit, I like. I don't like to. Paint the picture that I know him really well because I don't, but having worked with him now or had worked with him for a few years, uh, that that truly is him uh, speaking, and he wasn't doing it to put any you know shit on me or or the company. He he really believed everything that he said there.
0: So let's talk about it. Uh, it looks like it's finally going to happen. I can't believe this is a real thing, uh, but it comes out in the torch on September fifth. Representatives of Ric Flair have met with WCW representatives in the past few weeks trying to reach an out-of-court settlement that would result in the return of Flair to WCW and the reuniting of the Four Horsemen. Both Flair and WCW have outstanding lawsuits against each other with court dates pending, but Flair wants out of his deal, but for the right price and enough concessions by WCW, he would return. And a couple of days later, Meltzer would report something similar, saying that it looks like within the next two weeks, most likely, the September 14th Nitro from Greenville, South Carolina. Ric Flair is back on TV. What the hell happened? What changed?
1: Nothing changed. Just, I, I think everybody realized the situations they were in, WCW included. I think Ric Flair and his attorneys realized that they were in a box. They weren't going to get out of it. And despite the spin that both Keller or whoever it was and, and Dave Meltzer were fed because it was – been there were no big concessions there was no you know it's just <laughs> here we'll we'll drop our suit our lawsuit you come back to work that was the concession
0: so it's going to be uh the 49 year old rick flair's first appearance on television in six months and in the meantime both hunter hearst helmsley and the undertaker had done promos where they sort of shit on the idea of rick flair being in the wwf referencing his age So maybe that makes Rick wonder, "Mm, maybe the grass really isn't greener, maybe we should try to figure this out. And um, his legal expenses have reached more than $75,000, so he probably needs to start making some decisions one way or another. They run a big angle, the Nitro before, where Arn Anderson is doing his first run-in since retirement, and he saved Dean Malenko from an attack by Rick Rude and Kurt and then with Nitro going head to head with Raw for the first time in 3 weeks WCW was hoping that Flair's return with the whole Horseman situation would do really really well in the ratings so you knew at least a week ahead with Arn doing the run in next week's the week right yeah so talk I mean, I
1: mean didn't didn't know anything for 100% but things were leaning in that direction I was comfortable comfortable enough to make the move. Let's put it that way.
0: Meltzer would write, for a while it seemed the chances of Flair and Bischoff reconciling was remote. Not only did the two sides file lawsuits against each other, but Bischoff had made derogatory remarks about Flair during a locker room meeting speech to the wrestlers, and Flair had talked in glowing terms about his desire to work for Vince McMahon again and perhaps be the corporate champion McMahon was looking for to a feud with Steve Austin. In the end, of course, we know what's going to happen here. Um, but it is sort of fun that it just seemingly comes out of nowhere. Um, talk me through what actually happened when you guys actually got back together. So there's a conversation about the creative that night. Take me through when it happens. Does it happen at nitro a week prior over the phone in person? What's that look like?
1: Probably in person. Um, you know, what was really, and this will just be so hard for people to understand, but once Rick decided he was going to come back, once WCW, once I decided he was coming back, for, I'll just speak for myself, I can't speak for Rick, there was no more animosity. I mean, it was done. It was over. And now it's, from, from my perspective, it was just a matter, how do we make this work? How do we take this bad situation that everybody's known about. There's been stories in the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Vince McMahon has talked about it. The dirt sheets have been talking about it. I went out on television and talked about it. Now that the world knows that the situation exists, it's kind of like I talked about earlier. Do you just pretend it didn't happen? And go about business, or do you take this unfortunate situation and try to weave it into a story? And Rick was really uh, more than supportive to turn it into a story. He saw that opportunity, and it was real. Rick Rick does his best when he can sink him, we can sink his teeth into something that he really, truly believes in, and he can he can allow himself to believe in. And clearly, you know, him him being hot at me and hot at the situation, you know, wasn't a stretch of his creative imagination.
0: Let's talk a little bit about um, what Rick wrote in his book. He says, Every day, Arn would call me up and say, Come on, Rick, we need you here. Ultimately, that had an impact. When I finally came back to work, I simply agreed to extend my old contract for four more years. I just couldn't hold out for $1.5 million when Arn was trying to keep the horsemen together. So you guys decide not to have him come back on Fall Brawl. And I think a lot of the fans that night, we just covered that last week, the fall brawl 98, the war games where there's three teams. It's happening in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. The fans are chanting, we want flair. I think a lot of people expected that to happen. It doesn't. You got to save it for Greenville the next night. At that point, why give it away on, that sounds crazy, but why give it away on pay-per-view when you can pop a big rating with it now that you're back head-to-head? That's got to be the thinking, right?
1: Well, so not so much why give it away on pay-per-view. People were buying the pay-per-view, but there was no story built in. Right. I mean, what, he's just going to show up, like exactly. drop out of a helicopter and say, hey, I'm here, and there's no story. It would have made absolutely no sense. Whereas on television, now we've got time to turn it into a story. Now now we've got time to figure out where we want to go with it, as opposed to him just dropping in from a helicopter and waving at the fans.
0: Well. Shooting,
1: shooting some kind of hot shot angle.
0: So when you, you... – get to nitro that day uh all the horsemen are there they've got their tuxedos you've talked about the creative what's your what's your day like that day with rick
1: it was easy and that's a part that's so hard for people to understand now i don't you know again i can't speak for rick rick may have been seething inside he may have wanted to kill me i don't know but i know the way he acted he was he wasn't, you know, the Ric Flair that I used to hang out with at the Yacht Club, you know, in 1995 and 96 uh, or 94, 95, I should say. Um, it, it wasn't jovial and, and all of that. But there was no there was no tension that was obvious to me. Like I said, he may have had to go back in a locker room and chew a bucket of nails, you know, to keep from killing me. But you'd have to ask Rick about that. My interactions with him were positive, positive. We were both excited about the storyline going forward. We were both, you know, he was looking forward. He knew that I had heat. I mean, that was no secret. Um, he, 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 and I were looking forward to working together. That's the only way I can say it.
0: It's pretty crazy, man. It happened. Uh, we just passed the uh, the anniversary of it. Uh, if you haven't already, you need to go out of your way to watch it. Um, it was a real moment of, you know wcw at its best because it was real it felt real and rick even wrote in his book um and we're going to play a clip at the end here but he wrote in his book i ad-libbed what i was saying to eric bischoff on wcw monday nitro but the feelings were all too real the fans were jumping up and down pointing and cursing at bischoff screaming like they were no longer watching sports entertainment but something that had previously been confined to the dressing room and they were right it was all out in the open and it was real absolutely 100% real. So you didn't really talk about the promo that much when you're out there and Rick's feeling it to the point where he's so fired up. I think he bites his tongue. He's bleeding from the mouth and he's just going off a classic flare promo. Did you know right then? Fuck, this is gold.
1: Yeah. I mean, we knew what we were going to do. We didn't, you know, Rick's not the kind of guy you're going to rehearse a promo with. I mean, Rick and, Rick could have, I got to be careful the way I, I reference thing in past and present tense to this day. If Rick and I were going to do something in the ring and Rick and I worked closely in TNA together when we were both there, I would never say, Rick, I want to rehearse this promo with you. Right. To me, that's disrespect. Sure. To go up to a guy with Rick, and say, Rick, I want to hear you Get, give this promo back to me. Let me hear how you're going to do it. To me, that's worse than probably any of the other stupid shit that I did. But, you know, we both knew where we were going to go. We knew what the story was going to be. We knew where the issue was. We knew what the focus was. And, you know, I, I was the same way. I didn't rehearse my promos. I, I was going to react to what he said. Acting is really all about reacting. You know, whether you're reacting to situation or you're reacting to, you know, something mm-hmm. that someone says to you or about you, you know, that's when it's gold, so we, since we knew what the story was, we knew what the direction was, we knew what our personal issue was, and I was about 1,000% convinced that Ric Flair was going to cut one hell of a promo, which he did, um, it made it really easy. And yes, did I know you know, that we struck gold? Absolutely, But we, knew, we both knew that prior. We both knew going into that promo that this story was going to be a great story because it was real. So it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't like, oh, shit, this is going to be great. We knew it was going to be great before we did it. But listening to that promo made it real. You know, listening to the reaction from the crowd made it real. Watching Rick's real emotion rise to the surface the way it does when he believes in his promos not just in this situation, but in others that we've all seen him in in the past. When he gets so emotional that he wells up and he's so angry, he literally starts to cry or, as you point out, bit his tongue and is bleeding from his own mouth, you know, that's when you know he believes in his shit. And when, when he believes in it, so does everybody else. And you, you got to know you're printing money at that point.
0: And you guys did. I mean, you you worked this all the way through Starcade. I mean, it would continue after that, too. We've covered the uh, January 4th edition Uh, from 1999, that Nitro, and that's when Flair was president. So there's still lots of meat on the bone to this Bischoff-Flair story, but almost everything else from here forward is going to happen in front of the camera instead of behind the camera. And Flair's return in front of the camera got a 5.4 rating, easily the highest rating of the night, and it beat Raw head-to-head right there in that segment, which was only pulling in a 3.8. So a home run segment, and uh, I got to think at some point, a lot of people, probably yourself included, thought it wasn't going to happen. Fair to say?
1: Yeah, that is fair. There were there were a lot of moments um, from the very beginning, you know, and it was it was hard. I know it was hard on Rick, and I know for a long time after that, you know, he still resented me and some of the things that I had said and and done uh, for a long time. Like I say we're we're close now, we and we have been now for probably ten years, but. There was a time, even when I was in WWE, that there was, you know, it was so ironic, you know, and I, and I hate to bring it up because it's a little bit out of context. But, you know, when I got to WWE, Rick and I and Arn hit it off great. Right. We, we'd, we'd go out and when the shows were over, Rick and I and Arn would go out and grab beers together. And he, but that was that was the surface Rick Flair. There was still a part of, you know, there was still part of this period of time that was still eating at him. And, you know, it, it came to a head, you know, what WWE television, uh, live, it was raw, it wasn't a taping, it was a live show. It came to a head and we got into a confrontation and, you know, for a period of a couple weeks, it was kind of tense. And then I think we were, we were in Australia, uh, with, with, with raw and WWE and we kind of sat at the bar, looking across the bar at each other. And we both realized, okay, this is stupid. And, uh had a couple beers together, and next thing you know, we are laughing and joking like it was 1995.
0: We're not done with this story. There'll be more, I'm sure, uh, but the hard feelings would hang around for a long time, and um, I'm sure we'll document more of that. He, even Flair in his own book in 04 wrote, as for Bischoff, he's tried to make peace with me on several occasions, saying things like, life is too short, but he knows I'll never forgive him. Fuck no. Of course, these days, that's not the case, as you said, and uh, cooler heads have prevailed and everybody's in a better place and everybody's happy. But I do want to ask, going back to 98 and hindsight, do you regret how you handled things and, and what would you have done differently?
1: Of course I do. I said that right at the beginning of this podcast. Um, where I messed up really bad is not only, I, I it's not even fair or accurate for me to say underestimating um, how much... Pride Ric Flair has, or how much respect he deserved from me that he didn't get. Um, I, I just, I've always been a very matter of fact person, in, in, in my personal life, I'm not a, I'm not an emotional person. I don't have a lot of friends. I don't give, I don't give people, you know, I don't pat people on the back and tell them they're doing a great job. And that's a flaw, by the way, I'm not proud of this. I'm, I don't want to make sure people understand this. There is a flaw in my personality and it's been there since I can remember. Um, I've never asked for, you know, people to pat me on the back and tell me I'm a, I'm doing a great job, nor have I ever consciously, you know, been aware of doing it for other people. And, and when you manage talent, you have to do that. Because talent are different. You know, it's it's one thing if you're managing, you know, an office of a, you know, attorneys, okay, or engineers. That's another good example, because I like to beat up on attorneys all the time. But engineers are very analytical people. Their their heads are in their numbers and in their logic. Those types of people generally don't need a lot of, hey, you're doing a great job, or you know, you don't you don't need to manage their personalities the way you do with talent, whether it's a musician, whether it's an actor, whether it's a wrestler or whether it's a weatherman
0: or a salesman
1: <laughs> or a salesman, you've got to manage the person. And sometimes that person needs more than just facts and data. And I've always been a facts and data kind of person and, and it's, it, it didn't serve me well. Because I failed miserably to realize that by focusing on the things I was focusing on at the time, I, I was not intentionally, that's the part that, you know, hurts. I don't want to say hurt doesn't make me emotional, but it really disappoints me when I think that people thought I was intentionally disrespecting Rick early on. Now, once we got into the lawsuit and I said what I said, you know, I did. And I, but like I said, given the same situation, I, I likely would do something similar again. But where I really fucked up is just not understanding. That's the best way to say it. How important it is, especially for a guy like Ric Flair, who is an emotional guy. You know, this, we, you know, people that have, are close to Rick you know, he's a very, very emotional guy and he needs and deserves let us let me emphasize, deserves and deserved, past tense, much more respect than I gave them, And that was the beginning of the end. That was what, it was like pulling one little thread out of a blanket and then pulling another little thread. Well, those little threads really don't mean too much. But over a course of six months or a year or 18 months, when every week you're pulling another little thread of that blanket, all of a sudden you get up and you go to pick up the blanket and it just falls apart. And that's what happened with Rick and I. It was just never intentional. I didn't mean it. I I just didn't recognize how much my lack of outwardly respect, because it was outward, by the way. I did respect Rick. I did. I just didn't show it the way I should have or could have or the way he deserved. And that's what I I regret the most.
0: I'm going to put you on the spot here. Where do you rank Rick in your all-time personal rankings of wrestlers your all-time greatest list where's rick on the list top three well you no
1: know, it's 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 an you know, it's such an unfair subjective sure you know again being the kind of person i am um i'm ranking that purely on business you know what 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 did rick flair mean to the business at, at not only you know even today <laughs> ironically but you know, in the in the 70s, in the 80s, you know, in the 90s, in that territory in N.W.A., what did Ric Flair's influence? How did it change the business or how did it grow the business or impact the business? How, what has Ric done in the in, what's his body of work? You know, and if you look at his body of work, he's definitely in the top three, maybe maybe the top two. But it's subjective. You know, other people, look depends what you grow up with and and how you value or or evaluate, I should say, you know, people's contributions.
0: Well, Eric, we appreciate your contributions to the show today. I've kept you long enough. This was a story that a lot of people were excited to hear, and, man, we gave it to them today. The full Ric Flair versus Eric Bischoff story. That was everything behind the scenes. We'll talk about the on-camera feud in the coming weeks and months here on 83 Weeks. We'll see you back next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff.
1: John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your
0: next round. Together, together.